Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. I like him. He's a good boy. Where is he? I have no idea. He's off duty. Check around. I checked. Anywhere a good boy might go. You're too late. It's gone. He destroyed it. Everything about it. Well, except for the box of bones that you already took. Which I'll wager wasn't enough. Here you are. You tiny thing. In the face of the fabulous new, your only thought is to kill it. For fear of great change. You can't hold the tide with a broom. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Uh, I'm Patrick, and I'm here with... Dan Ferlito. And our regular contributor... Micah Green. And our very, very, very special guest connecting at 2 in the morning in a dressing gown. Mm, that would be me. I'm Robin, and I'm from Cambridge. In the UK. <laughs> in, the, in the UK. And we are so... Morning, not Cambridge Mass. <laughs> I just want that yes. to be really clear. Right, that'd be well. We could just do that in the same room. I would still, I would still wear a dressing gown in that in that scenario. But uh, we are so thrilled tonight to talk about one of our favorite characters from the new film, uh, Love. And before we get into that, we want to do a quick little shout out to patrons. So I'm going to go ahead and kick it over to Dan, who's going to give you a little message. One more kiss. Yeah, so we've been uh, wanting to thank our regularly contributing patrons for a while, so I'm going to list you guys by name. Um, so Andy Ev, uh, Hideo Yutani, which is probably a username, Lisa Cocker, Philip Mitchell, uh, Tommy Erickson, and Craig Wright, which I've both seen um, contributing a lot on the online blogs. Craig Wright has certainly gotten into plenty of conversations with us. Charles Kay um, and Zachary Rice. And uh, on our top tier, a special shout out to uh, Sethicus, who's also a username, but um, he contributes on our uh, tier three list of patrons. So he's going to get some extra benefits for that. And it's a really big contribution for us that really helps our small production. And so, yeah, we'd like to give a really big shout out to our patrons. We've really been focusing on content a lot more lately. 
and putting out as many interviews and good episodes as we can for everyone, which we know everyone appreciates. But we are working on revamping our patron program. So for the people that can afford to throw down, you know, $2 or something like that a month, it really helps us, you know, at the end of the month, we can uh, upgrade some of our microphones and some of our equipment and it helps pay to boost uh, for example, publicity things. We're trying to get um, as much advertising as we can to spread the podcast out. And so those are the types of things that the Patreon program uh, helps pay for. And we'll also be updating people on what we're doing with the funds probably once a month or once a quarter as that happens. So we're working on revamping that. Um, if you're interested and you know have uh, the ability to help out financially, you can go to perfectorganism.com slash support and uh, give us a contribution. You know, we contribute to other podcasts as well. It's just kind of goes around and we really appreciate it. So thank you all for helping us out. Yeah, thank you so much. And I, I want to point out briefly that we've recently done a series of in-person interviews with some pretty truly legendary people within the Blade Runner community, among them Paul Salmon, who's uh, the, the author of Future Noir, whose first part of his interview just debuted today as we're recording this. Uh, we also have upcoming interviews with Timothy Shanahan and some other effects artists, some other people that work on, on a lot of the films firsthand. And we're doing a lot of these in person with equipment that we purchased using money from our Patreon program. So you guys actually gave us the ability to do that. Um, and we could not have done it without you. I can say that personally. You know, I, I, I couldn't just cough up a couple hundred dollars to do this. And the fact that we have the ability to is truly amazing. And I think a great service to the community at large, the fact that we can get access to people and, you know, be part of a whole family. So thank you very much, everybody. I'm here for Mr. Wallace. Follow me. Uh, without further ado, I want to go ahead and kick things off tonight. We're talking about love as portrayed by Sylvia Hex, who I think has emerged as a clear breakout character um, from 2049. And she's very complicated. But I, I remember early on we had uh, Robin on the show back, I don't know how many months ago at this point. And um, the, the conversation kept kind of circulating back to love and we kept talking more about her. And, I, and that was the first time where I remember um, talking to Jamie and Dan and being like, I think we need to start thinking about a dedicated love episode because she's such a, a multi-varied and interesting character. So um, I guess first I want to kick things off uh, to Robin, because I know she's close to your heart. What are some of your overarching thoughts on her, and wh how, what was it like watching her in the film, and um, how, has, how has she kind of evolved in your mind since it's been nearly a year now since the movie came out? Love was interesting to me because my background is in politics and political theory and the history of ideas, and I think love is fascinating because of the position she has in the blade runner 2049 society um she is simultaneously enslaved um due to her status as a replicant but also she's much more powerful than the vast majority of the human characters and can do kind of paradoxical things such as walking into the um, police headquarters and murdering someone and walking out entirely um free so i think it was i think it was her paradoxical position her paradoxical social status that, that immediately made me kind of think that she was interesting um i mean not to mention the incredible portrayal um by sophia hicks um so yeah so um so i thought she was fascinating i think perhaps in the year or so since the film came out what has struck me is the kind of similarity to some extent with with the character of roy, roy batty in the original film in that she is simultaneously enormously sophisticated and yet in some sense very childlike um and i think that's probably the aspect of her character that has kind of come out to me watching the film again um and and thinking about it you know and, and kind of reflecting on it rather than just responding to it immediately if you see what i mean 
Interesting. Uh, I, I want to go ahead and, and uh, kick it to Micah as well. How, how, what are your thoughts on her overarchingly, and how has she kind of evolved for you since the movie came out? So, coming at it from the point of view of um, an actor and a woman, um, I was completely drawn in by her power and the fact that um, her being female wasn't as it so often can be in film and has been in film ever since the beginning of the first movies. Um, her position wasn't um, diminished by the fact that she was female. She was actually the most one, if like one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful replicant in the entire movie. And um, like Robin, I was really attracted to that paradoxical her being kind of untouchable in that she's Neander's right hand, but at the same time, um, everyone around her, and including herself, she knows that she's a slave and that she is bound by her duty. Um, even down to her reactions, everything is controlled, and I just, I was so fascinated by those little moments when um, her vulnerability and her humanity broke through, um, as with the tears that um, characterized her for me a lot. Like, every time she allowed a tear to fall down, I was completely mesmerized by her performance. I think it was very, very strong, and it's definitely something that I still think about whenever I think about the movie. Um, I, I, yeah, I just, I'm so excited by her as a villain, and I'm so heartbroken by her as just a character. And Dan, what about you? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll try and separate my thoughts from other people's. Uh, Jamie, of course, the the founding father of the podcast, can't be here with us tonight uh, due to a um, scheduling issue. But uh, he gave us our blessing. He he knows that we know kind of his thoughts. And um, Ian Souter, who's a, a listener of ours, also um, had some really poignant things to say and to contribute. So we'll get into their comments uh, a little bit later. But um. Yeah, I found Love is one of those characters that watching Sylvia Hook's performance and looking at the way the character was written, I instantly knew that I was way over my head in terms of being able to really dive deep into the character, which is why I'm glad that we've had so many people contribute ideas about her because from comparisons to Shakespearean plays um, to just deeper philosophical concepts like there's a lot going on behind the scenes there and i think that can be said about a lot of other characters roy batty in the first film uh although he talks plenty and and kind of emotes a lot uh, but certainly Kay and ryan gosling in several roles has that ability to be very stoic and you're trying to figure out what's going on behind the scenes which is why you know the scene where he gets angry famously in the movie is so powerful right because normally he's emotionless Love has a similar quality, and I think we all couldn't help but notice the way that's visually portrayed in those single tears that you see at several different points. And, I, you know, I watched the movie trying to identify when that was happening. Um, it happens, for the most part, I noticed when she's exposed to death or killing. Not every single time, like when she crushes Joy, which arguably could not be killing something, right? Because she's artificial. She doesn't have a tear. And when she kills Coco, she also, that's a very matter of fact, like, get out of my, you're in my way, get out of my way type of thing. Um, almost the way a much more powerful predator would 
sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for, but get rid of something smaller that's in its way. Um, but when you see the scene with the newborn, right, when the newborn is uh, is killed, uh, and Wallace is there and staring at her, and you know, I, and to me that tear is um, a visual representation of this emotion that she's trying to hold in. She's very stoic, very unemotional, no matter what she's doing. But as we all know from crying, oftentimes you can't control tears, right? You can be there, you can be sometimes at your job or in a relationship or whatever, and you're trying to be rational, be objective, and you can do all that, and you can act that way, you can talk that way, but sometimes you'll cry um, in terms of actual liquid leaving your eyes because there's it's a physiological function and there's nothing you can do about it. And so it's kind of a cool um, – it's a nice touch because we all can relate to that as humans. And so I think there's a, there's a bit there that helps us relate to um, this replicant. So yeah, I, I felt as she's plenty of female characters in this uh, movie, but certainly the most physically powerful and overwhelming uh, character. No doubt that if they still had the old Nexus six ratings, she's an a physically. Um, and we'll post some notes later on, uh, videos that, um, you know, we watched in preparation for this talk and that our listeners can, can watch, but Sylvie Hoeks talks a little bit about her physical preparation for the role. Right. And, uh, I think she said for three months, she trained six days a week in weightlifting for, yeah, sorry, six hours a day for three months straight doing cardio, weightlifting and martial arts. And you know, I, I would. She's five nine, but I would still guess she's a hundred and maybe fifteen pounds normally as like a model. And she had to put on fifteen pounds of extra muscle, which is a lot of weight on that frame. And so you really, I know she felt it in her performance, which she talks about, but you also just see it on the screen. Uh, and when she's physically challenging another character in the scene where she kills Joshi or where she's fighting Kay, I mean, you feel all of that, and it's a representation of her confidence her, her physical attributes are a representation of her confidence as well um so yeah i could go on but that those are kind of the things that stick out to me initially with love would it be possible to reschedule this call please well i think um I, i'd like to talk more about the crying because i think that's something that, that comes up a lot when we talk about her um, and it, it, it comes out of, you know, Hooks's performance. But I think also it says a lot about if you look at the situations in which she does it, I think it says a lot about what the actual um, inner workings of her character are. And because you're right, sometimes she can be so, you know, sociopathic or, or you know, very predatory when she kills Coco. When when something is in her way, she has no qualms about committing murder. But when the newborn comes out and is just, you know, a harikari to open like that. Um, she completely breaks down. And I think it's also interesting that she kills Joshi with the same motion, um, mm. which is kind of cool. And she cries again then. So there's some, I don't know if there's some sort of a womb metaphor going on there. But uh, I, I guess I, I want to open the floor up a little bit and talk just basically about the crying and what your guys' thoughts are on that and what that symbolizes. Well, I think it's really interesting in those two poignant crying moments that we keep coming back to. Both of the crying is spurred by the death of a replicant, or what we're assuming to be a replicant, because, I mean, the newborn is killed in front of her, and, again, she has that physiological response that she, even she, cannot control. Um, and the second time she cries is when Joshi tells her that the, the baby, which is the product of a replicant and a human, or, or whatever, if we get technical, it could be a replicant and a replicant. Anyway, it's, it's basically a part of her race, for lack of a better word, 
and she sheds a tear then. So it's it's interesting that she's moved to tears when it comes to her own um, species, the replicants, but she could care less when she's killing a human like Joshi or a human like Coco. She does it in cold blood like a shark, pretty much. But she just cannot stop herself from that physiological response of the tear when it's um, the death of a replicant. And I think it's important to, I think those are great points, and I think it's important to, to note what she says as she kills Joshi. She's not crying because she's killing Joshi. She's crying because she's saying, in the face of the fabulous new, your only thought is to kill it out of fear of great change. Mm-hmm. So she's pretty clearly a replicant evangelist in a way. She, like, like her, she, she actually is really motivated by the future of her species, which makes you wonder what she's been subjected to under Neander Wallace's, you know, care. But I, I think that there's something... There, Robin. What do you what do you think? What are your thoughts on the crime? My thoughts on her first tier are that what we're seeing with the death of newborn is we're seeing um, loves. Essentially, we're seeing her baseline test. That what Wallace is doing is he's subjecting her to an extraordinarily emotional experience, and um, one which brings up all kinds of complex feelings. And she has to be fine with the whole thing. She has to be impassive. She has to stand by and watch it happen. She has to kind of agree that it's the right thing for her to happen. Um, yeah. So I think uh, my feeling was it was, it's, it's a kind of like a baseline test that Wallace is subjecting to her to. And if you look at the way that Wallace's kind of robotic eyes are circling her, it's really quite clear that he's interested in her reaction. Right. Um, and of course she passes the baseline test and then he pats her on the shoulder and says, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the best of them all. Or, you know, the, what's the, what's the phrase she uses? The, the, the best angel or the finest angel of them all. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I think it is about conflict, and I think it is conflict about um, partially the failure that she has to report um, that the newborn is unable to bear children. It's partly about her identification with the newborn as a woman, and as a woman who cannot bear children herself. Um, and also partly because this is an obstacle to Wallace's great vision, a vision that she buys into 100%, even though it's a vision which leaves her enslaved. So I think there's there's all kinds of yeah complex things going on there which are not wholly to do with the death of the newborn, but are to do with Wallace's project and her investment in Wallace's project, as it were. Uh, That's really interesting. Uh, I'd like to go back, first of all, Thank you, Micah, for bringing some specificity to when the tear falls on her face, because in that particular scene, that's actually really important. And I'd never uh, I'd never put it together that closely. You know, in my mind, I was like, she cries when she or she has a tear when she kills Joshi. She has a tear when um, she uh, is watching the replica being killed. But that's a great point that um, when exactly the tear rolls down her cheeks. I think that's important. Um, and Robin's point is interesting. I have a kind of a counterpoint to it while not to contradict it really, but to say that both things could be happening at the same time. We don't know. I think it's part of the ambiguity. So, um, I have to reference something that I shared with you guys. I've watched now several times because it's such a well-made video, but for, uh, our listeners, if you, uh, look up on YouTube, like stories of old, This is a guy um, in Europe who does very well-produced videos on several different concepts, usually relating to movies. I mean, he has one kind of funny 
uh, on Michael as a character from The Office and about why he's such a good salesman. So they're like very yes. deep and philosophical, but they're not always a super serious topic, although his take on it is always serious. Nonetheless, he did a video on 2049 and it's very philosophical and very deep. It's like 17 minutes, but it'll take you three hours to unpack all the concepts that are in it. I've got three books on order that he mentions because I'm so interested in that philosophy. But anyways, um, the reason I brought it up for this episode is because he spends five minutes talking about love as a character and her interactions. And um, I wrote down a couple of notes and one of the things he pointed out is sort of a speculating on the future of the story and on love's intentions because um, she's obviously has the same ability the same way Kay does, even though she's probably a Nexus uh, 9, right? She can lie, right? And she says that to Joshi in the scene where she kills her. She says, I'm just going to tell Mr. Wallace that you tried to kill me first or that you brought out the knife or whatever she says, you know? And so it's very clear that she can... Um, mislead someone right which is not something that nexus nines are supposed to be able to do and she's aware of it so and and uh patrick brought up a good point that she seems to be sort of like she's very micah said she's affected by what happens to replicants and she sort of has this messianic sort of feel to her and that's what the author of like stories of old says he says what are what are love's secrets um, she's trying to, she's very subservient, right? Like Robin was saying, and, and wants to do what Wallace's bidding is. She wants to find this replicant child to please Wallace. But at the same time, what if she despises her creator? What if she has a rebellious part of her that she's just keeping under the waves for now? Because if she finds this child and can overpower Wallace, she could become a messiah for her species, right? Mm. But towards the end of the movie, Kay stands in her way and that's part so it's like it's almost like i said it doesn't refute robin's point at all it's like both things could be going on right now she's trying to do wallace's bidding and even in killing in fighting and ultimately killing Kay, she's accomplishing that mission but what if there's an ulterior motive in the end so i thought that point was really fascinating i i really don't see that at all in her character the, the rebellious streak and the reason being that she completely buys into wallace's view of herself so when she describes herself when she's talking to herself when she thinks she's just killed Kay, she repeats what wallace says i'm the best one okay so she's completely buying into wallace's view not just of the world but of herself and over and over again she is imitating wallace so the action of the stabbing both of Kay and of joshi is the action that wallace does when he kills the newborn so when she kills she kills like wallace when she talks about herself she uses wallace's terms so the best thing that anyone can ever say about her is what wallace says when he says you're the best one that is the only affirmation she needs and it's the only affirmation she wants so that's why i would say although i completely get that she lies and i think it is fascinating that all of the artificial or synthetic characters in this in the film have developed the capacity to lie i i completely get that but nonetheless i think she is completely sold out for wallace um but anyway you know obviously one of the great things about this film is the ambiguity and you know you could read it either way but that's my reading I think that there's something interesting going on, though, because in a lot of ways, I think she evinces the behavior of like a cult subject, like somebody who's been indoctrinated um, and can no longer differentiate between the boundaries of herself and her leader, like the person that she's Ooh. following. 
And there is something there is something I think very cult like about what Wallace is doing. Obviously, there's like the the literal cult like aspect that he's in a temple, you know, surrounded by water, you know, in in a monk like you know ascetic uniform. But I also think that um, he by by using fear as a weapon against the replicants and keeping them subservient as tools and making them feel sort of like they and making them very aware of the of their order within the hierarchy and constantly singling out special ones like love. I think he's sort of setting her up to be brainwashed. I also think it's worth noting, Dan, that's a very good point about the lying thing. I think that, um, so while she is a Nexus 9, she's not a normal Nexus 9. She was created after the blackout when he was legally making replicants, and she was basically created as, as far as we know, that role keeper, as the enforcer, as the, as the, um, I this keep I keep, this term keeps coming up and I keep forgetting what it is. But in in in, in American plantation slavery, the slave the slave master the the one who was like a level above the other slaves on the plantation and was singled out for preferential treatment even though they were still a slave. Do you know what I'm, Robin? You probably know what I'm talking about. Do you mean the house negro? No, I'm I'm thinking of like the uh, slave driver. Is that the term that where there's one? So basically, the idea is that there would be certain slaves who would be given preferential treatment in exchange for enforcing especially punitive things on on other slaves. And so, so if if they were able to whip you know another African you know immigrant basically, then they would be like given preferential treatment. So to my mind, that's kind of the role that she's fulfilling. And I think there's something very psychologically interesting going on there because she is still a slave. Um, she's still completely um, controlled, but within that, she is. And, and I, I do honestly think that she is kind of chasing two things at once. Because while she's doing Wallace's bidding overtly, it's also I think her bidding. Although the the aims are different, because she she wants Kay to find that baby more than I think Wallace wants him to find that baby. Because to her, given when she cries and given her breakdown moments, it seems like she her whole being has become one of finding salvation of finding a way out of the situation for her species but maybe not maybe that's completely off base but the more we talk about it the more i think of her as somebody who actually is um very tightly following the rules but for reasons that are not what we might think they would be because maybe under the skin she actually believes that there's a future that they can find I just wanted to bring it back really quick before we get too far away from it. The point that you were making, Robin, about um, how she really mimics what Wallace tells her in in and the, the I'm the best one. Did did you guys? I mean, she she also kisses Kay, just like Neander kisses the newborn. Yes, right yes, after. Yes. Good point. Yeah. Right after she thinks she kills him, um, and I think. I think she's she's been raised or whatever, being told that she's the best angel. And when she believes that she has finally succeeded, she's beaten the one person that was in her way, which was Kay. She has fully realized that I'm the best one thing. And she does exactly what her... I think she kind of sees him as her father. She does what her father does in that she kills him and kisses him. In, in this very... I, I remember being totally struck by that the first time I saw it. And it's, it's, she's, she's like a child in that she's always kind of referring back, uh, deferring back to Neander, like, look at me, dad, did did you see what I did? Like, was that good? And then with this final moment with Kay, when she kisses him, she, it's, it seems, she seems different. It's like she knows that that was good. And then she's, she's won and she goes back to the spinner. Like she's like self-actualized or something like that. Right, right. I did the right thing. I am the best angel. Like I won. So. I just thought that that it, it's so interesting that she copies him to the point of physically killing humans and Kay, and um, she thinks Kay in the same way that she has seen Neander 
kill the newborn. So crazy. Oh man, there is so much going on with this conversation and this character. Like again, (laughs) sailing right over my head where I'm like, oh man, I had all these notes and now we're getting into things I didn't even think about. Well, it's funny because we should have picked an easier film to talk about, shouldn't we? Yeah, yeah, right. Talk about Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And and I think that, I mean, Robin has a great point about uh, specifically her saying, I'm the best one when Wallace isn't around to hear that. So she's not Mm. saying that for him. It's almost Mm -hmm. like an indoctrination or that she really wholesale buys into Wallace's plan, um, which still doesn't discount that I think the story could go in a different direction if you continued it and she were to um defy wallace but yeah that that's more of a that's more of a theory than anything that's i think set in things that you can see um it's not impossible but i but i agree with robin's point about what we see in her character and and the perspective um it's interesting because on a very basic level i remember thinking why did she bother well a bringing a knife with her to a police station assuming that you in this type of world you're going to go through a scanner or something like that um and b pulling it out and using it because she obviously killed coco with like a 0.2 percent effort of her body you know what i mean like she just like so scary that moment like you realize how powerful she really is you know so fast and like just instant death I was just like, holy crap, like he died in like 20 seconds. And so she could have very easily crushed Joshi's throat or done something similar with just her bare hands. So the point that she's potentially imitating Wallace and the way he killed the newborn is fascinating. I hadn't thought of that. But I had, I had questioned the knife in my mind. I'm like, why did she use a knife? Why did she even bother? Well, there's a um, ritualistic aspect to it as, as well. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And that initial slice, I mean, she slices her and then she stabs her. But that initial slice is very similar to what Wallace does. Um, and of course, the kiss, I, I would be remiss to not mention this. But yeah, I, I, I see the connection with Wallace. There's obviously an inter-film connection between that and Roy kissing Tyrell. When he kills his maker, he kisses him very famously in that scene. And both scenes it holds his ex- head too. Yeah. Right. In both scenes it's extremely obvious that there's nothing sexual or romantic to the kiss. It's literally um I mean you can spend a lot of time unpacking it, but it's a connection between the two characters and either a showing of love, even though that even though Roy is killing his maker, um or the way we're sort of seeing that love seems to have a soft spot potentially for replicants. It's a way of her showing uh, some kind of empathy or connection to Kay, possibly. Although I will add that Rachel 2.0 doesn't seem to be any different from any other replicant that's made in this period. And she shoots her in the head, no questions asked, without a tear, without that's a thought, true. without any. It's very good point. It's very much. And so I will, I will say that's the one exception to the whole her feeling, you know, bad for replicants dying. That, mm. That's one I noticed. I wish we could see what, like, because I remember the shot where she does shoot Rachel, Rachel 2.0, seemingly, like, super cold. I agree that it's cold, but I wonder what would have happened if the camera were a little bit close to her face. I I actually, I remember thinking that, too. Like, oh, I wonder, because I remember being like, oh, wow, she just, like, straight up murdered that other replicant, and, but I remember thinking, I, it's some, it's different. She's not a Blade Runner, so she's not used to constantly killing 
other replicants. I wonder if that did affect her and we just didn't get to see it because of the shot or because it wasn't important, as important cinematically to the plot. Well, and, and, and not only is it dark, but she's also not in focus because it's a it's the, the aperture of the camera makes it so that she's actually obscured in the background. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You, I you wonder. can't you can't yeah. tell what she's doing. That being said, though, it lacks the ritualistic aspect of the other kills where she was emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, and, right, and she's also not fun. imitating Wallace in method of killing. Wallace doesn't right. shoot anywhere in the. And if anything, and, she but, she seems yeah. Go ahead, Robin. But I think she can't imitate Wallace because Wallace is standing right next to her. Oh, so, good point. Yeah. So the thing is, when Wallace is not around, she is Wallace's proxy to the extent that she mimics his behavior and his ways of talking and his and his and his worldview. But when Wallace is around, she recognizes that, you know, that, that, that you know, the real Wallace is in the in the building, so to speak. So therefore, she just reverts to being his right hand woman. Um, the other thing I'd say about her relationship to Rachel 2.0 is that Rachel 2.0 is, in a sense, a threat to love in that love cannot bear children and bearing children is the next bit of the Wallace mission. So if Rachel 2.0 was to fulfill her mission, it then becomes questionable as to whether love really is the best one anymore. You know, maybe Rachel 2.0 is then becomes the best one. So Rachel 2.0 is a threat to love. And I think, you know, if we could see her face close up, who knows what kind of expression she might be showing, who knows what is going on in the inner life of love at that moment. That's a great point. That is a good point, although I do have a technical uh, counter to that in the sense that Rachel 2.0 is just a bribe. She is not the replicant that is going to bear children and become this, uh, because remember, he has the skull, he has he has the, uh, oh crap, what does he say? He doesn't have the key, right? So she's a bribe in order to lead Decker to the child which then extracting the child's DNA, supposedly they'll be able to make a replicant which will then bear children. So although I see your point, I don't think Rachel 2.0 is a direct threat to uh, love in that sense. I stand corrected. You're absolutely right. <laughs> it was a I'm great not actually point, standing. Right? I'm, I'm lying down. Well, but, but, but she does, I mean, she's a waypoint on the way to a reproductive replicant who could supersede love in the hierarchy of the Wallace Corporation. And know, maybe, and maybe Wallace tells her, no, you know what? She's just a bribe. She just looks like her. Right. That's it. He could have said those things because uh, we know that love is highly intelligent she would be very good at communication, and obviously Wallace is the genius behind all of the new replicants. So maybe he was like, "Hey, this is just a bribe for Deckard to get us what we want together." As a part of, like you said, maybe that brain control type cult indoctrination of mm. love. So who knows? All of this stuff in this one movie. But also, I, I mean, the I mean, she she's very emotional when she kills the newborn angel too. So and and, the, and that newborn angel was supposed to have been the one that was able to bear children. So I'm not really sure where she fits with the whole jealousy thing. I mean, I, I think that's something to unpack. But I do think though that all of the comments that we've been having around that moment, in particular, hint at something else that's going on with her that I want to unpack a little bit, which is her childlikeness, mm-hmm. um, which I think is one of the most fascinating aspects of her character. And um, the reason why I bring it up in the context of that scene where she shoots Rachel 2.0 is because she is 
acting in a way like you see a lot of the time kids uh, on playgrounds when something goes wrong and they want to prove that like their little sister did it or something and they'll push the little sister down and they'll act borderline sociopathic and it'll be quick but it'll be a moment of like ooh that's societally awkward you know um and i think that she and her constant need to assert her position within the, the wallace corporation for whatever reason she's doing it there is something about it that it's like she is this sort of like haughty kid who is whose self-worth is determined almost exclusively by this other person this parental figure as micah said um and so to to feel like she's a value she kind of has to prove herself to him over and over again and and in the absence of that maybe she can't necessarily find value but um unpacking that i want to go back to the scene where she escorts Kay into the the memory chamber it was unclear what she was at least to someone this was a test we were difficult to spot then was there anything unusual about how you found her to warrant an official investigation. You know how people are about old serial numbers. Everyone just sleeps better when they know where they got to. She likes him. Who? This Officer Deckard. She's trying to provoke him. It is invigorating being asked personal questions. Makes one feel. Desire. Do you enjoy your work, officer? Please thank Mr. Wallace for your time. Um, when I first saw that, my initial response was that Love was in was was a new Rachel character, in that when Deckard meets Rachel and for the first time she's very cold and controlled, um, and there's some physical similarity between Love and Rachel. At least to my mind, they both have very pale skin and they're very tall and they have dark hair. They're enormously composed in the way that they they move across a space. So when I first saw her, I I, I could, you know I had no idea about the depth of her character um the the part of that scene that i think is utterly fascinating is the moment where she flirts with Kay, and i think that's an indication that there is an aspect of her character which is not completely about wallace's project because having some kind of dalliance forgive the kind of archaic english term but having some kind of dalliance with Kay. Um, is something which is outside the parameters of Wallace's mission. Um, just one final point that's been hovering around the edges of my consciousness for a while, which is I think we need to take her name seriously. She's called Love. Um, obviously, it's not spelled L-O-V-E, but it's, you know, we, it said Love. And I think what she embodies is Wallace's conception of love. And I think, you know, going back to the idea that Wallace is a messianic character um, and in some sense is a kind of type of Jesus. And Jesus is, you know, the, the Prince of Peace, but he's also, you know, the great, the, the, the Messiah of love. I think, I think love in some way embodies what um, Wallace believes love should be. That is to say, for Wallace, complete subservience, complete dependence 
um, and a complete um, or almost complete um, buying into the Wallace vision. So those are those are kind of the thoughts that occurred to me um, when I'm thinking about that scene and when I'm thinking about where that scene kind of leads, as it were. It's also interesting that in that moment there is, sorry, going back uh, to, to Dan's point about um, rebellion against Wallace, there is a kind of hint of rebellion in that scene in that she says kind of somewhat ironically and somewhat um under, you know, in, in, the, in some way there's a dig at Wallace at this point. She says he's a data hoarder, as though to say that she recognizes that Wallace, her, her messiah, has foibles um, and foibles which aren't entirely rational and aren't entirely, um, you know, aren't, aren't entirely explicable, perhaps. So, yeah, so I, I think it's an, you know, every part of every scene she's in, she's amazing. And every scene she's in, we see all of these different layers and I, I think this is one of the reasons why it's a film that we can go back to and, and it's worth rewatching is because, you know, is, is that there is so much depth to love, um, both in the writing and in the portrayal, um, which is, you know, which is which is why I, I think she's just such a wonderful character. Totally. Um, I, I want to toss it off to Micah in, in one moment. But before I do, just something I didn't want to forget to bring up is the physical similarity with Rachel that you brought up. Mm. The first time I saw the movie, and I really distinctly remember this, I thought it was Rachel at first because of the way she was shot. Because if you remember, the first time you see her, she's in that consultation meeting one-on-one -on -one with a potential client who's ordering replicants for, I think, a construction site or something. And she, it's very clear that, that Villeneuve is shooting this so that you think it's Rachel because you see her kind of art deco Oh, outfit. wow. I never thought you of see, that. Well, because he does Yeah, you see the bangs. Dark you see hair. her silhouetted with the shoulder pads. You see her legs crossed. You see the high heels. And you don't see her face for like 12 or 13 seconds. You're seeing an outfit and you're seeing a form. And you're going into this as a Blade Runner fan hoping and somehow you're going to see Rachel and knowing that, you know, that Sean Young was on set and all the talk was about like, is she going to be there? Is she not going to be there? So w when I first saw that, my heart was like, doo, doo, doo. I was like, Oh my God, like Rachel. And then I was like, why is she talking like that? Like it's a different <laughs> actress. And then I was like, her accent sounds weird. And then I was like, this is, this is strange. And then it reveals who she really is. And it's very clear down to the fact that she has an angular haircut. I think that there are very clear physical similarities with Rachel. I think conceptually, and I'm saying this to kind of bookmark it because I don't want to forget to come back to it. There are a ton of parallels with Roy Batty um, also. So I, I just want to sort of just bookmark that momentarily. But before we get back to that, um, I want to pass it to Micah. What are some of your thoughts on her childlikeness and uh, on that scene in the memory chamber and that kind of stuff? Oh, I mean, I think it's just so um, pleasantly surprising. And like just, again, another one of the things that totally fascinates me about her and and breaks my heart about her and and I think it reflects back on her um seeing Wallace as her father um I mean it's clear that they had a, a very childlike aspect of her character in mind when they were designing everything from her lines to her costumes I mean in the interview um you guys should check it out that YouTube interview that we haven't we'll have it in the show notes um, Sylvia Hex talks about how when she went to wardrobe, they were talking about making her have sort of a higher ponytail that kind of would swish when she would walk, which is, um, you, you couple that with like the severity of the, the hairstyle. So it's like this like crazy paradox again, like Robin, like you said, it's, it's just, you've got this like severe cold shark who can kill in cold blood with this child who desperately wants to be the best one and to 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 please her father and to to be like the strongest one the most valued one like that's how she's seeking her 
sense of um, a greater purpose by being the best angel out there. And I think it's it like to me, it just breaks my heart every single time that she fails Wallace. And it's clear that even though like she is the best one to him and like she probably has a ton of confidence about that. And um, for she does pass her baseline test, as it were, with the newborn. I think she still feels like she failed. So when she leaves that room after um, the newborn is murdered in front of her, I think she's worried that he thinks that she failed that test. And it drives her. Like, that's that's what drives her to be the best one, that fear of failure and um, that childlike longing. And um, in this interview, I, I really liked what she said. Um, it's really interesting because uh, I wanted to point out, I, I found out this interview, guy, you guys, is so great. She, Sylvia Hex, talks about how the tears actually were um, a completely natural thing. They weren't written, per se, into the lines. They sort of happened during the scene. Like, they were a very natural thing that that happened to Sylvia Whoa. as she was portraying love. So it wasn't like they were like, all right, this is when you cry. It happened to her. That's um, amazing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Um, but she and says, I watched the interview, too. I just didn't catch that particular little piece. I'm going to have to watch it again. Kind of, she kind of offhand says that, and I remember, like, pausing it and going back and being like, whoa, because this is something that so many people have taken away from the movie with this <laughs> character, that those were natural. Like, those things just happened. Um, and she says, um, it was important for myself to be as human as possible. Crying re uh, revealed a sense of humanity, a sense of longing, a sense of her meaning loves pain and her conflict so it's just like that it, it those moments are like the most powerful for me like that's when the little child comes through when the tear escapes from her and you know that she's furious at herself for it but like that that struggle with the keeping calm and collected but being who she is and crying a little bit because she can't help it that's like the humanity of her and that's why she's so compelling Oh man, I like those are great points, Micah. You obviously, I mean, I was watching that interview without doing anything else, but like, it's so easy to miss a little detail like that. That's it's a pretty long detail. interview too. It's it's pretty it's amazing. Long. It's a half it's hour. A half hour. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that same uh, that it's same guy young. in that same show, which again we'll put in the notes. Uh, I YouTube just pulled it up for me automatically, but Harrison Ford has an interview um, on that Ooh. same show. That was yeah. valuable and interesting as well. One of his more friendly interviews for, for him. <laughs> <laughs> um, rare. Obviously, he was, it was like September 2017, so he's still in contract to do X number of interviews and talk <laughs> right, about it. Right. So okay, I never want to talk about this movie Wait, ever again. It's going to go fly no. my airplane. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and landed on a taxiway <laughs> instead of the runway. <laughs> oh, a little, little ATC right. humor right there. Air traffic Sad control humor. joke. Um, <laughs> no, but you know, you know what this made me think of in terms of childlike behavior? is that if you go back to the first film, right, that's sort of how the um, you can explain in the script the scenes with Roy having really mixed emotions and being all over the place, and it's kind of a little bit hard to figure out, right? Because you're like, he's talking about toys and joking around, but then he's crying and, and, and mourning Pris and being really serious. So, like, his emotions are all over the place, and as you learn more about how these replicants are constructed, you're like, oh, right, he's 
three and he's almost four years old, right? Because he actually expires in the movie. So he's at the very end of a lifespan where you're built as an adult with an adult brain and body, but you only have four years of life experience, right? What did Tyrell do as an experiment to try and counter that? Well, he made Rachel and he implanted memories into her to try and give her a base of emotion. It could very easily be the case that although K as a Nexus 9 has memory implants, right? We know that for a fact because they show the memory in the movie. Love could not have any memory implants. So she could be struggling with the same sort of um, dealing with human emotion, even though she may not have a four-year lifespan, right? She could be an unlimited lifespan replicant, but if they didn't bother to give her a story, an emotional background, memories of her childhood, et cetera, et cetera. They're like, no, we need this person. We need this replicant to be right hand uh, woman to Wallace and follow orders, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe they never bothered to give her any memories. And that would kind of partially at least explain her mix of emotions when her tears come out. Uh, the fact that she says I'm the best one, which is a very childlike response on the surface. So, I, I mean, honestly, I had not thought about this until Micah made those comments. So this is like freshly coming out of my mind. I haven't explored it, but it, I feel like it's a possibility. Yes. I was, I was also intri intrigued by the notion of to what extent love has false memories and um, to what extent that was necessary in in order to create a quote-unquote stable product um, that is to say a, a stable replicant um, I think the other thing I'd say about love which I think adds to the emotional complexity of the character is that she has to bear something which no human being has to bear in that as far as I can work out love is superior to Wallace in almost every way um, you know she, I, I would I'd imagine that she is you know she's made as well as they could make her um, which is to say that she's been engineered um, in a way that, that Wallace hasn't been. So she doesn't have Wallace's foibles. She could entirely be as intelligent or more intelligent than Wallace. And yet she has to all the time be subservient to him, knowing that there will never be a time when she can be free. Okay, and that's something that no human being ever has to bear. The people I have to take orders from, you know, they have strengths that I don't have. And, you know, one day I won't have to take orders from them anymore because I can resign or I can walk away or, you know, or whatever. But she can never do that. So I think there's a kind of, she has to bear emotions that no human being ever will because she's been manufactured, she's been manufactured brilliantly, and she can never get out of this relationship. I have to say, Robin, I don't know if it's intentional, but you almost directly quoted Tyrell in saying that she was made as best exactly. as she could be made. Because that's yeah. exactly yeah. what Tyrell says to Roy when he's asking yes. for more life and asking to be right. modified. He says, you were made as well as we can make you. Yeah, and, and, and that scene to me is one of the clearest moments of parallel between those two characters. Speaking of that scene, you guys, this is another thing that I learned from this interview. Just just watch it. Just do yourself a favor and watch it. Um, Sylvia Hex was asked to audition for love with the Roy Batty scene where yes. he is asking for more life. Yes. What? How totally. crazy is that? Oh, that so, fits in so great with what we just talked about. Thank I you, know. Micah, for bringing that up. I was Man. like bursting to say that because it's, I just <laughs> think it's so incredible. Like, um, this is probably part, partly because I'm an actor and I, I love the fact that they gave her that scene to read. And she was saying how, um, in the interview, she says how she was just sitting there all night with it and having so much fun with it. But I, I never, like, really put that together. It's such a parallel journey that Roy and Love are on. 
when they're 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 asking for more life and it, it's the tragedy is that love will never have more life like she clearly wants it but she is like you were saying robin she will never be um free from the slavery and it's interesting because more life, I think, means different things in the context of the movies. And, you know, we look at the arc of 2019 and we look at the arc of 2049. And in a lot of ways, 2049 is taking the themes in 2019 and um, exploding them outwards and taking them in deeper and, and more broad directions. But they're thematically very close to what's explored in the first film. To me, Roy's seeking life is for himself, right? Because he is this incredible, beautiful creation who has traveled, you know, light, well, not light years, but he's traveled across the galaxy to find more life so that he can go on and achieve his destiny that he feels he rightly deserves. Whereas I think love is not looking for that, partly because she's a Nexus 9, so you would assume she has an open-ended lifespan, but also because I think her real goal is life for, is life and is freedom, is to shed her chains. So whereas, whereas Roy was, was rebelling against the fact that he was about to die, I think love is 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 rebelling against the fact that she um, doesn't have a future, and that her species doesn't have a future, her race doesn't have a future. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting parallel between the two as well. My feeling is that she doesn't want freedom, or at least not freed, or at least not consciously. I think she is so invested in the Wallace vision. And the Wallace vision is that civilization is built through slaves and the new way of doing slavery is through replicants. So I, I, I really, I, I think her vision is to build the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God being, you know, the rule and reign and influence of the Wallace Corporation. Um, however, um, you know, going back to, to Dan's point about her having, a, you know, a possible rebellious streak to her character, um, yes, I, I, you know, there, there are moments at which she seems to want to um, pursue goals which are not 100% in line with what Wallace wants. Um, but yeah, but I think when she's acting consciously, she's about pursuing her, 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 her modus operandi is, is extending the influence of the Wallace Corporation rather than personal freedom. I think I just want to point out briefly um, in the context of what you just said and also the context of talking about her, her juvenility relative, you know, or at least what appears to be juvenility. She, it, so she was created after the blackout in 2022, and it took like more than a decade, as we saw in the prequel films, for Wallace to be allowed to start creating replicants legally. So she was created sometime in the mid-2030s, which means that by the events of 2049, she's effectively a teenager. And I think in a lot of ways, the way that she behaves, whether it be that sort Good of that, that flirtatious, kind of awkward, childlike, kind of embarrassing stuff that she does in the memory chamber with Kay, or the, the, the hints of rebellion, the hints of um, being unable to control her emotions in certain environments because she's not in control of herself. I think had, there's a lot of an adolescent aspect to that. And I think that that might be so. While she might have bought in, and it's funny, Robin, you keep convincing me to see it from your perspective because you're so damn eloquent. But I, I, <laughs> and then and then immediately I revert to my whole like, well, I think she's actually searching for her freedom. But what's great is that both of our arguments are equally valid because the movie's deliberately ambivalent in this way. So like, you know, you can kind of take the train of thought however you want to take it. But I think because Denise's you know, a genius and made sure to leave it as ambiguous as the first movie, so you can talk and argue exactly, exactly, and it's always. Interesting to talk about because because no matter how you think it through, it doesn't get contradicted by anything because everything begets more possibility. You know what I mean? Um, but I think that if you look at it through Robin's lens, she may have bit part and parcel into the ideology of the Wallace Corporation 
and and in even in so far as considering it a holy mission like you know going off of like wallace's mission statement like you just said you know like he believes very strongly that the universe is built literally on the backs of slaves and that slaves are uh, basically a holy part of creation and that it's you're, you're fulfilling a role and almost, i mean it's a sort of it's a sort of uh speak that you hear from suicide bombing things it, it you know mm -hmm. that like that that this that this world doesn't matter because you're fulfilling a greater goal and this is coming from a guy who has actually at least physically saved humanity with his protein mm -hmm. farms and things like that like wallace in a lot of ways actually is a functional messiah character in addition to being narcissistic and messianic in his affect he also did kind of save the world so it makes sense that after that he kind of loses his mind a little bit kind of like you know I, I'm, I'm trying not to get too off track, but I, I think about because we're going to have a Wallace episode soon. <laughs> that's that's right around the corner. But I, I think a lot about Jim Jones and um, and what happened in Guyana with the the People's Temple um, or the People's Church. I can't remember the name people's of the cult. The People's Temple. I, I don't know, but 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 the guy who where there was almost a thousand suicides in this this Guyanan complex because this guy who started from a place of real you know purity of mission and actually was really great with minorities and with impoverished people and with uniting people um, in, in the community who wouldn't talk to one another and giving them a real sense of hope and destiny and set up this really great experiment that was in a way kind of utopian and then it fell apart so dramatically because he basically lost his mind after he accomplished what he'd set out to do i think in a lot of ways wallace is that like wallace is a t totally alone He's separated from everybody in the outside world, at least as far as we see him. And he's basically just uh, completely inward. And he's also, you know, has saved the world once. Mm -hmm. And so I think that she has bit into that ideology, if we're going with her line of thinking on this, and might believe in it very strongly. But as a teenager, who may or may not have implanted memories, and I don't think she does, I think as a pure instrument, she was probably created without them, for him to be basically to, to be a vessel for Wallace to pour everything into. Yeah, it um, makes more sense for her to not have memories, yeah. And, yeah. But I think if she's 12 or 12 or 13 or 14, that's when you start questioning things and you start rebelling against, you know, your um, mentors. Oh, I just wanted to ask quickly, you guys all, and specifically you, Robin, um, just as like a question that I might, that might be interesting. Um, so if she's bit fully into this, this like ideology that Wallace has given her, what if they won and they've found the child and love delivered the child to Wallace and what if he decided to kill it in in order to like decided to kill her the child in order to find out the most information that he could in order to achieve his goal like what do you think she would have done if that was the plan I know that he probably wouldn't have wanted to kill the child but I'm just wondering what do you think love would have done had that been the goal and, and, and Decker does say that that was what they assumed the expressed goal was dissected. Like that's you know, yeah, he says it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, but I think. Hang on a second. I want to clarify Micah's point because the child was most definitely going to be killed through the process of dissection and DNA extraction. I want to say, but is Micah? Micah, is your point um, whether the child was just going to be like thrown away and destroyed in order for? Uh, meaning that Wallace was going against what he was overtly saying, that he wanted to actually not be able to have replicants evolve, or is that not what you're saying? No, 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 I'm no. Sure. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I wasn't clear. I'm just wondering what you think uh, What you think Love's reaction would have been, given that she is so affected by the destruction of her own kind, the replicants. I wonder, oh, okay. and, since, and since it seems that she cares for the well-being of the child as as 
it pertains to the future of her race. I wonder what you guys think she might have reacted to the destruction in in dissecting the child. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sorry, that was so con convoluted. Hmm. My thought is that her reaction would be similar to the destruction of the newborn in the sense that there would be competing emotions going on there. However, I also think that one of, just if we back up a bit from the newborn scene, when we first see Love interact with Wallace, Wallace says something like, um, you know, it's, you've entered the kingdom of heaven without a gift, you know, and up until that point, when we've encountered love, love has always been in control of the situation. And she's always been, you know, she's always been very, yeah, she's, she's been a commanding presence. But at that moment, she kind of stops. And her, I think, I don't know if it's actually there, but I, I think her, her, her lip quivers. And for the very first time, because she's entered the kingdom of heaven without a gift, and she has displeased her maker, she is no longer the force to be reckoned with in the scene. And she's on the back foot. So when, so, so love's response to the newborn um, is partly she recognizes that this newborn creature has gone through the same process of birth she's been through she she sees a kinship with this newborn but at the same time she the newborn is a symbol of her failure um whereas if they had found um dr astaline um and they had dissected her that would have been a triumph um so all of the all of the kinship she would have felt um, and all of the, the, the all of the kind of the, the squeamishness she would have felt about the dissection would I think have been drowned out by the by the success by the triumph um, and by the fact it. that yeah that that this this is the next step in Wallace's vision so well, the so end I justifying the means yes indeed absolutely so yes yeah, so I don't think she would have had uh, I, I don't think she would have felt any qualms about finding killing dissecting. Um, this, uh, you know, Doctor Doctor Anastaline. Um, the only issue would have been: Are they doing it right? If that if that process itself had gone wrong, then I'm sure Love would have felt like a failure, or she would have felt, yes. But 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 I don't see that she would have had any moral qualms about that. Yeah, again, she did shoot Rachel in the head with, I, I just rewatched the scene and indeed it is, her face is out of focus, um, but there's no sign that they were intending to show you a tear or hesitation or anything like that in her body language or anything like that. She's just like, well, I mean, very, she's very confident when she walks very up deliberate, to it. Yeah, yeah, right. Body, yeah. Like, it's it's very like, you didn't work. Right. Out of the way. Um, I did, I really quickly, before we get too far away from it, I wanted to go back to something Micah said earlier. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on, based on your experience being an actress, but um, as a casting director, you know, your job is obviously to pick the right people for the roles. And obviously you are um, conferring with the director and producers and everybody else. It's probably not just your decision. I'm not sure who has final say normally in a production, but um, I would say that it's probably no coincidence that Denis, most likely Denis, selected that scene of Roy asking for more life to have Sylvia Hoek's audition for the part. I don't think that that was just like a, 
oh yeah, this will be a good replicant part or this will showcase the character well. I think it I think it was much more deliberate than that. Just like anything any other detail of this movie you look at um is like, oh right, that's not a coincidence. That's why people have written like dissertations on what uh Nabokov's pale fire means and how it relates to the movie, because like that book wasn't picked on accident, right? Um same as uh again, I've mentioned this a few times on the show, but it was such a revelation to me. Such a small detail, but I was like, oh shit. Um when I read that chapter in Treasure Island recently um, and, and what it says about the characters, but also that I realized in the deleted scenes that Holden after being shot by Leon in the first movie, when he's in recovery is reading treasure Island. And it's like, there's no way that's a coincidence that that's the book they picked to have Deckard give his initial lines from. So anyways, my, my point being, <laughs> I don't think any single detail of these movies is a coincidence. And so the part that they had Sylvia Hulks read from was very deliberate. And so of course she must've spent a long time thinking about it deeply because it was obviously very representative of her character. Yeah. And there there was obviously something that Denny, the casting director and the producers wanted to see from the actress that they would cast as love, which is (laughs) the only reason, I mean, they picked, they absolutely picked that scene to see whatever they found in Sylvia. Like they, they wanted to see something that could have been brought out in that scene. And that's why they picked it. But depth most likely is like the depth of those interactions specifically, right? Because they could pick a scene where it's like you have to cry or you have to show this emotion or you want, you know, you want to see, can you be muted or can you be uh, expansive in your emotions? But I think uh, that scene really requires a lot of depth and handling uh, the character from a perspective of a character who has these complications of no memories, uh, hasn't been alive that long, but is required to have these you know, complex interactions while not really being sure who they are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think that that totally makes sense for her character. So, um, yeah, I would guess they did that on purpose. And, and because they're, uh, because you're right, it's not just the emotional aspect or things like that, but, but it's also, um, when you're playing a character like a replicant, there are parallel performative considerations going on at the same time, because you're not only, because you're playing the scene, right? But you're also playing the scene as transmitted through a non-human character. Mm-hmm with a right. different set of considerations that you also have to transmit. What's so amazing about, about Ricker Howard's performance and, and Sylvia Huck's performance is that they are performing very um, emotionally rich dialogue in very emotionally effective um, ways, but they're doing it without ever, betray- without, without ever forgetting the fact that they're not humans showing it. There's a fundamental... Um, and I, I, I brought up the Asperger's thing a few times, but, but to me, like, there's, there's a level of that, especially with love, of just like there's sort of a there's there's something separating her from what you would expect somebody reading those lines to be doing, um, and I think that it's really interesting because because you can act a scene by basically just playing the scene you know and and a lot of actors do that and they're fine and you know they get leading roles and they're basically they're always playing some version of themselves going through a narrative or going through an emotional journey and that's fine you know you don't have to necessarily play a character every time but if you can play a character and then also tell a story. It's a unique challenge. If that character is also specifically removed from the typical human experience, then you're doing a, basically a triple valent thing that's very difficult and very effective. And I think what's so amazing about Sylvia Hex is that she plays these scenes in an extraordinarily powerful way, but also in a way that feels like it's a replicant delivering those lines and not a human. Another thing about um, the, the, the scene that they chose is, I mean, um, speaking as an actor, um, I'm female and I'm also short <laughs> and I've, I've I've played characters 
that are traditionally male. Um, for example, I've, I've played Mephistopheles before, and I know that part of um, the hard work that I, I had to do was to find power in, in myself. And I think maybe another ingredient to choosing that Roy Batty scene would be to see um, a fe uh, an actress show the power that Roy Batty expresses in the film. Like, they needed to see someone who could match that level of physical dominance and of strength and of just general power. I think that's definitely part of the the reasoning behind choosing those things. But what's so cool is that it's power, but it's like a precocious child-wielding power, mm -hmm. which is so difficult. It's, it's, it's power, but through a vessel you would never expect to be powerful when you first meet it, you know? Right. Yeah, because let's not forget the context of that original, not that we're forgetting, but just to mention it, the context of that original scene is a character killing God with his bare hands. Like, that's a pretty, <laughs> that's, that's quite the heavy, uh, right. you know, subject matter. So, right. yeah, yeah. Not, not your typical audition. <laughs> it must have been true. awesome. I wish I could have seen it. They used to scare me so much as a kid. Oh, yeah. Tyrell's death. I, I used to like, I, I, I definitely closed my eyes. The first few times I saw that, I was like, so, I it was, it's such a scary moment. It's, it's so, like, it's so intense. And that That's was before, beautiful. that was before the final cut. So you were watching the less graphic version of it. Right, exactly. Yeah. As a child, <laughs> and now it's like, know? you're just watching blood streaming out. But it's, it's so powerful. And it's, and the reason it's scary is not just because of the graphic violence of it, but it's because of what it represents. I need freeze these. Fire. Oh, North. Fire. Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, Ian uh, Souter, one of our listeners and friends, unfortunately had, a, I, I think it was a sickness in the family, so he had to cancel on the conversation last minute. But he was gracious enough to send us some uh, very cogent, well-written notes. So I'm just going to read these straight through as best I can, um, knowing that I'm not an actor. But <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and give my best performance as him, and then we can all comment on this. So... Here are his comments on love. I find love a tragic, a truly tragic character. While I grieve for Joe at the movie's end, my heart breaks for love. She is Ariel and Caliban both to Wallace's perversion of Prospero. As a uh, parentheses I had to look this up because I'm not that into Shakespeare and those are characters from The Tempest if you want to look it up a truly tortured being a demigod child raised by a parent who is emotionally abusive to the nth degree fracturing her psyche and creating a monster the glimpses of her vulnerability and inner torment the eye twitch and the lone tear are utterly convincing in a 30-year career I specialized as a detective in cases involving physical and sexual abuse and of children in particular. I always think of a seven-year-old boy who had been raped by another boy, a teenager, who spoke quietly to me in a monotone, which didn't alter in pitch or intensity once as he described exactly what was done to him. His face was frozen as his voice, emotionless and still, except for the tears, which fell constantly from his eyes for over 30 minutes. He was entirely unaware of the fact that he was even crying. His emotional trauma was so great. That is why I find her such a terribly sad character. When Joe kills her at the end, it's an act of mercy, of a release. The way 
he gently strokes her cheek after releasing her throat tells me that he knew this also. It also resonates with me that Wallace calls her the best of all his angels. I had a very Catholic upbringing. Catechism, mass, communion, confession, and more catechism on a daily basis, even before the school began. The school was affixed to the church, and more than half our teachers were Jesuits and nuns. It was always instilled in me that, biblical, biblically, excuse me, biblically speaking, angels are not the fluffy guardians who shield us from all harm, if we have the right color crystals and our chakras are in harmony with their true names. They were the messengers of God, and as such, they were truly terrible, both in aspect and character. When these swords of God were sent, plague swept the land, or else nations fell, firstborns died, cities were blasted to ashes, and even the faithful were turned to salt for disobeying a simple command. They swept the world of life for their God, bringing the rains. They are said to be the ones who shall unleash the end of things, breaking the seals that unleash the beast. They are not merciful things. They have no souls. That gift was given to man and man alone. This is from a bib biblical point of view, of course, not a personal one. So when Wallace speaks of his angels and of love being the best of them all, and when she is clearly such a destructive and tremendously damaged character, wreaking death in the very heart of the police station, not once but twice, yes, I'd agree with Wallace. His creations are meant to be angels, swords of God, perfect in every way that he wishes them to be, soulless, devoid of conscience, bred to obey him utterly and to bring him the stars and all the worlds beyond, and I believe, somewhere along the way, help fulfill his yearning for godhood and possibly even immortality through them. Love is all that and more, the distillation of the same savagery which drove Batty in a killing spree throughout the colonies, across the galaxy, and back to his flawed, manipulative creator. While Joe represents the light side of Batty, which evolved from his feelings, his love for Pris and his fellows, love is that darker side. While she echoes Rachel in appearance and playfully silken tones, she is Wallace's sword through and through, striking down any and all who get in the way of the quest to unlock the puzzle that maddens her creator and holds him back. He might as well be the hand striking Coco or wielding the blade that ends Joshi and ultimately Joe. She is his creature, more effectively collared than any dog, regardless of how her childish ego has to demean and diminish this male competitor to her title. This is why she lets him live in Vegas, I believe, because he has been brought to heal by someone fit to be his mistress, a better, matchless, perfect servant of their creator. Still the best. She forgets him almost as soon as she turns from his unconscious body. While her intention might conceivably have been to let him die slowly, I believe the contrary. This is a creature who has developed a taste for killing up close in an intensely personal way. Stabbing someone to death is an almost sexual act, providing a leave of gratification which simply cannot be felt by killing from afar. While she clearly uses the drone to relieve her ennui, and thereby assist the hound they have loosed upon the trail of Rachel's child, her face comes alive only when she strikes up close, the perfect, beautiful mask dropping, then to reveal the savage lurking behind the surface, Caliban unleashed. Her childlike rage, the screeching, gurgling tantrum when she realizes finally that she has been bested by the same hound is truly awful to watch. It's as mesmerizing as it is repulsive and tragic all at once. Euthanizing a savage, beautiful creature, which never stood a chance and never chose to be the way she had been molded. She breaks my heart every single time. It's an incredible performance by Sylvia Hooks. For me, it's unquestionably the standout of the movie.
Awesome. It's a pretty goddamn good comment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Great comment. Um, before we close out, I guess maybe a fitting way to do it would be uh, to, to get kind of our reflections on some of the things that Ian brought up. And, and um, I'd like to start with Robin for that. That, that's a, um, an extraordinary um, commentary on love. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's so sad Ian couldn't be with us, but but you know, but, but what what incredible insights! Um, I think one of the things. I mean, there were so many things to, to to kind of deal with there. I think one of the things that stood out to me was the reference to the Tempest, and for me, the Tempest is 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 Shakespeare dealing with um, nascent colonialism, essentially, um, and I think. Again and again, in Blade Runner 2019 and 2049, um, colonialism is kind of there in the background. Um, Wallace, as well as being a messiah, is a colonial master, and love is part of the mechanism of his company, which is kind of trying to colonize the universe. So I, I think t picking up on Ian's idea about angels, one of the things that strikes me about angels, at least as far as I understand them in Christian um, in Christian cosmology, is that angels are unlike humans in that angels do not have free will. So the angels can never fall. Um, this may not be entirely true, but yeah, anyway, as far as I understand it, the angels don't have free will. And I think one of the things about love is that she's not really there to be a free agent for Wallace. She's there to be his hands. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think there's all kinds of things going on there, um, which, you know, yes, which, which, um, which, which, yeah, which um, I will now throw over to somebody else to unpack. I have one other thing to say at the end, but yeah, but I'll throw it over to someone else. Well, I'm wondering, and I can go ahead and and, um, and be contradicted on this by my wife, who went to Catholic school, or by anybody else who might know more than I do about this. But 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 <laughs> Lucifer fell because he exercised free will in opposition to God, correct? Like he was his favorite angel, and then and then he defied him openly, and that's why he fell from. Does anybody know? Okay, Robin knows. <laughs> um, I think the thing about Lucifer, um, Lucifer, as I understand it sought equality with God. So he didn't want to rebel against God in Lucifer's own terms. He merely wanted he wanted to do God's will, will his own way. Do you see what I mean? So it's mm -hmm. a slightly different thing from Adam and Eve who fall in a different way because they directly disobey one of God's commands. Right. I, I think that's the distinction. But anyway. Okay. 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 Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Dan, what are, what are some of your thoughts on that? I mean, again, it's Ian's comments were so deep. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think that his reflections on his professional career, being an investigator and looking at uh, the emotion is really interesting because he's noting that, um, yeah, the connection between tears and emotion, which are which can be disconnected, just like this child who's very monotone and really obviously in having PTSD from his experience, and yet tears were still flowing out. He didn't even know he was crying. And I think that that's um, something we're noticing here is the disconnect between that physical display of your emotion that's coming out from somewhere deeper and what you're either consciously or subconsciously trying to display. I think with that child, there's obviously a lot of... Um, unintended sort of muted emotions that are coming out in the way he's speaking because of the shock. Um, so I think there's an interesting parallel to love there. And then, um, you know, as, 
as graphic as it is, I think that his um, his description of stabbing someone as being an almost sexual act. Uh, obviously, he's describing it from an objective standpoint in terms of comparing different methods of killing someone. And I, I read a book called On Killing uh, a long time ago when I was in the military, actually. And it talked about the repercussions of killing people in war in different ways and, and how essentially the argument from a psychologist was that starting from choking someone or stabbing someone where you're literally killing them either with your bare hands or with an implement going all the way back to at this time they weren't flying drones but someone bombing somebody from 40,000 feet and then flying away there's a total disconnect there with what you're doing and so the act of killing someone up close and personal where you can see the whites of their eyes is a very very personal um thing which one can understand most of us probably haven't murdered someone but we've all had sex and we understand that connection between um you know two physical bodies being joined so i think th those two things struck me the most out of his comments um in terms of love's character that's really fascinating and i, I, I definitely think that there's a correlation between um crimes of passion and stabbings versus shootings because I, I, I mean this is something you know any, any true crime novel will show you pretty quickly <laughs> that a, a lot of the time, you know, crimes where you really love somebody um, and then something is horribly wrong, um, they're marked by, you know, very close penetrative violence where, like, the face is defaced and literally things like that. So so there's definitely a correlation um, with that. Um, I, I want to toss it off to Micah, who is a, a genuinely a Shakespeare scholar, because I, I think that the she, – she's, she's directed oh, Hamlet. Oh, cool. Oh, that's um, awesome. I think that uh, that the comments on the Tempest are super cool, and Robin, you unpacked some of those. But I, especially the character of Caliban, who I think is so fascinating. And you know, the, the Tempest was Shakespeare's last work too. So in a lot of ways, I think it's sort of the. Well, it was arguably his last. No one really knows for sure. Just going there. Maybe was his last work. I don't know. Such a nerd. I'm sorry. But 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 I, I think that in a lot of ways it was a crystallization of a lot of the things that he'd been working on. Like Robin mentioned, the sort of proto um, imperialistic stuff. So and or colonialism. So anyway, I'm going to toss it off to Micah to talk a little bit about that, and also. Any final thoughts you have? Oh, wow. Well, um, it's interesting that he, not lumps her in, but he, he describes her as being both Ariel and Caliban. Um, Caliban is the embodiment of the slave in there. He does everything. Well, he is, he is a slave to Prospero, and he's also um, traditionally pretty disfigured. He, he's a monster. Right, right? he's a monster. And so because of that fear, like, he is looked down upon and he is beaten often. And um, it doesn't take away from his cunning, but he, he's definitely ostracized and um, less than. But then Ariel is this powerful sprite with a lot of agency and a lot of strength. And it, it's interesting and a very astute observation of Ian to put them together to form um, this image of this, like, sort of, image of what love LUV is in Blade Runner and I really really liked that um I was also struck a lot by um his mentioning of his experience as an investigator and um specifically that that instance with that poor poor young boy um and I've often thought um watching Sylvia Heck's portrayal of love of what sort of I mean you can tell that the murder of the newborn isn't the first time that she's been traumatized in that way for her baseline test, you know. She's probably seen it a lot as Neander is trying and trying again to make replicants who can procreate. Um, I wonder what other abuses she has endured 
being the best angel for Neander. I like it's just another layer of complexity that I I think about when I think of love after watching the movie again and again. So I, the, all of those points that Ian made are so fascinating and we could talk for hours on this stuff. And and hopefully in the Wallace episode we'll unpack even more of those ideas because I think there's a lot of of crossover just as there are with Caliban and Love with Prospero and Wallace because in a lot of ways because because Prospero um was a a power, formerly very powerful person who was in exile and is basically running a you know uh this like um very manipulative system on this exiled Mm-hmm. landscape that he's on and, and controlling Caliban and Ariel and all these things. So I think that we can talk about that with Wallace quite a bit too. So I want to bookmark that for next time. But in closing, I just want to say that I, I think we all feel very confident that even though it's 11 o'clock at night for us and it's freaking four in the morning for Robin and it's actually almost nighttime for Dan, that we could probably do another three hours of this episode and we will obviously revisit her again at some point because there is so much to unpack here and depending on how you unpack it, you can continue the narrative in so many different directions and it's an endlessly fascinating character for an endlessly fascinating film. I just had one thought which has been bugging me since the very first time I saw this film. And that is the last thing that Love says before the crisis of of Kay turning up and shooting, you know, shooting at the car is is Deckard says says to her, where are you taking me or where are we going? And she just says home. And I have literally no idea what she's getting at there. You know, in that sense it's off world home, for goodness sake. Oh, we haven't even talked about that. And I think of That's you know, there is so much about this film that I don't understand. Ah, fuck. And I, I just love the fact that, you know, at the end of the film, just before the massive action sequence, um, that the script writers are just, just throwing this 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 one word at us and who knows what it means and why she thinks that's home and you know and, and why she would think that would make any sense to Deckard to dis- mm. to describe Offworld as home. Yeah, anyway, and so all of that is wonderfully unresolved. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, end on a note of complete unresolution. If you, of, if you know. of complete, like, oh man, I wish we had another hour to talk about right. this because you're. Right. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> and do you and, remember and, how her voice changes when she says "yes" home and her whole face changes? Like that is the softest that we ever see her. That's the most hopeful we ever see her, and the most, I think, overtly physically childlike we ever yes. see her. That's why on, on a previous episode I mentioned that she's literally kicking her legs like a little kid. She's so, and she's kind of slumped over, and she's sitting, and she's yeah. like home. Oh. And she's so right. childlike in that moment and so at mm-hmm. ease with it. Even though they're going, I think the reason behind going there is because they have things there that they can extract information from him with. So like right. implying something more torturous. torturous, but we don't know. I mean, you know, we don't even know what she's talking about, let alone, you're right. Like she seems so at home in the Wallace Corporation headquarters. Why would this be a better place for her? Why would she refer to it as home? What does it symbolize and, and what could it possibly And maybe be? she's saying home to Decker because they were both built off world. Boom! No, no. But also, but, but to extend that metaphor out there, it could, it could be Wallace is Prospero in exile on Earth, and there's things we don't even know about because there could be things going on with Wallace that we, where he, you know, has power elsewhere that we haven't even seen. But this so, is not the Wallace. But this episode. is yeah. But we're gonna shut up now because this could go on for hours. I want to, I want to <laughs> just thank everybody so much for being on tonight. Um, Dan and I, this has been a great conversation. We're so excited. Micah coming back on again, as, as always. Yeah. Robin, making time for us. You're such a busy guy, waking up in the middle of the night and sharing your incredible yeah. erudition you, with us. I want to do a quick shout out. Robin, uh, and, you know, giving you uh, even more insight into how lucky we are that he's connecting right now. 
is the co-editor of an upcoming volume on philosophy and Blade Runner 2049, which is currently accepting abstracts. And so if you are interested in submitting, we have details on our website. Robin, you want to give a quick little shout out and how people can uh, apply for that? Yes, um, there's a call for abstracts, which just um, is very simply an invitation to anyone and everyone to say, if you have something interesting philosophical to say about Blade Runner 2049, and we're also interested in links back to the, the original film, to um, to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, to the novelizations. Um, so we've we've got about 10 or 11 different suggestions of different ways you could take this, but those are just suggestions. If you have other ideas beyond what we've already thought about, you know, we'd love to hear from you. So do email myself or my or my new friend Trip McCrossing, who's in Brooklyn. Um, we're editing this together, and you know we want to make it as um, as diverse and wonderful and interesting as we possibly can. And obviously, we need the entire Blade Runner community to do that job properly. So please, please, please submit us an abstract. And, and judging yeah. by the quality of your comments on uh, Fields of Calantha and elsewhere, uh, we got a lot of uh, very philosophically inclined people. So send exactly, it in. send it in. Dan, you're yeah, going to say I, something? I was just going to tell Robin that I specifically emailed the link to Tim Shanahan, who wrote Philosophy and Blade Runner, who was – I had sort of hinted at it before it was public, and then now that it's public, I sent it to him. So who knows how Thank busy you. he is, but I certainly think that he would – he would certainly have the interest in participating. Whether he has the time to do so, I don't know. But he's on summer break right now, so it's quite possible that he Excellent. might sit we down. We would love to have him. So we oh, would love yeah, to have his project, of course. And he, he also you. just uh, it got published in the Cyberpunk Nexus, which we're in the middle of doing uh, some reviews and episodes on. And yeah. So, and I talked to the authors about that. I, I believe that is, um, if not an excerpt, it's like taken from his book. So it's an essay okay. from his book that they expounded into their book. But nonetheless, um, Tim is a super interesting person uh, and a philosophy professor, and we will be publishing a, a great interview that we did with him on both films um, probably in September, I want to say, based on our scheduling. But it is recorded, and we'll edit it, and so that's upcoming for our listeners as well. And look at what a great situation we're in. We have not only this amazing new film that came out, but we have so much to say about it that we're freaking publishing books left and right. We're doing podcast episodes every freaking night. <laughs> you know, this is a, a wonderful time to be a Blade Runner fan, and I'm so personally honored to share it with all you guys. So thank you yeah, very much. Yeah, me too. And, and, thank and, you for coming and, on. Thank you for listening. And we're so it's so different from the world that the first movie was released in, honestly. Yes. Now we have yeah. fans of both movies, and there's an active community, and now with all this modern technology, it's just it's really a, it's a great time to be alive. You can storm <laughs> Eden and retake her. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.